welcome independent researchers, skeptics, and all of humankind, shadow citizens. Shadow citizens will explore the shadows of an alternate reality. Your hosts, Rachel L. McIntosh. Okay, gang, we made it another week for sure. This is great. Thank you so much for tuning in. Tonight, I'm honored to have the editor-in-chief of Technocracy News and Trends, Patrick Wood, with us. Mr. Wood is a leading critical expert on sustainable development, green economy, Agenda 21, which has been ramped up the 2030 Agenda, and the history of technocracy. He is the author of the book, Technocracy Rising, The Trojan Horse of Global Transformation, and co-author of the now fairly famous Trilaterals Over Washington, Volumes 1 and 2, with the late Anthony C. Sutton. Patrick Wood, in his bio, says that he's an economist by education, a financial analyst and writer by profession, and an American constitutionalist by choice. His current research builds on Trilateral Commission hegemony, focusing on technocracy, transhumanism, and scientism, and how these things are transforming global economics, politics, and religion. And with that, I'd like to welcome Patrick Wood. Hi, Rachel. Hi. This is is good. I I said earlier, we're going to have a lot of fun tonight. I really believe that. I think we're going to have a great conversation. I think so, too. I can't believe this is... Wonderful. I'm so glad you're here with us. Now, I wanted to talk to you because when I first started getting involved with the Ron Paul people back in like 2007, 2008, people would bring up, oh, I don't like that guy. He's involved with the CFR, the trilaterals. And I didn't know what that was. And I think we'll start off tonight talking about what the Trilateral Commission is, because it does sound pretty spooky. What is it? Well, it wasn't anything that had to do with the government. You know, you think commission, oh, that's official, right? You, mm. Something, maybe the government had formed a commission to do something. Well, that wasn't it at all. Um, it, but it's a very clever name, I have to say, because it misled everybody. But the Trilateral Commission was an organization that was started in 1973 by David Rockefeller and Zbigniew Brzezinski. Both of them just recently passed away, by the way. Um, but they banded together to form this organization. They drew membership from uh, a private organization, drew membership from Japan, Europe, and North America. And the idea, uh, they said, all over the literature, was to foster a new international economic order. That was the term they used, N-I-E-O, New International Economic Order. George W. Bush, or George H. W. Bush, uh, later when he became president, um, shortened, apparently, shortened that to New World Order in a famous speech that he gave at the United Nations. You probably heard that somewhere along the way. Right, right. Where he right. said, and we will create a new world order, you know, and, and, uh, uh, but George, uh, H. W. Bush was a member of the Trilateral Commission and he knew very well from his own literature that the correct term was new international economic order, 
not just New World Order. It was very misleading, and it has misled people to this very day because they interpret that as meaning a new political world order. Mm-hmm. And that was not in their mind originally, and even now I'm, I'm convinced uh, it was not in their mind at all to have a political coup or revolution, if you will, but rather an economic one. That's altogether different. So that's kind of a snapshot of where the Trilateral Commission came from. There's, of course, there's lots of reasons why and, you know, what what, what impact did they have and all those sorts of things. But they have um, dominated American uh, politics, I will say, uh, to get their own way ever since then, uh, ever since at least 1976, if not earlier. Okay. How many people do you think are on this? Commission is do they do they come together and meet at a location or is are they just kind of this yeah. loose uh, loose group? No, they meet frequently. It's a very okay. formal. It's a very formalized organization. In fact, um, although the earlier the early membership lists were difficult to obtain, uh, the Trilateral Commission has a website today called trilateral.org, and you can actually go there and download the current membership list yourself. Anybody can. Mm. So they're not hiding it at all. The membership originally started out around uh, a little bit over 200, maybe 250 people, but it stayed very small over the years. Uh, Even today, I think it's only about 300 and maybe three and a a quarter today. Um, So it's always been a small membership. You don't apply for membership. Uh, They come seek you out. Uh, And... they will vet you before they ever even go and tap you on the shoulder to say, come with me and let's talk. Um, That's different than the Council on Foreign Relations, by the way. The CFR has a membership process where you actually submit an application and you fill it all out. You could, you could do it if you wanted to. They they might, who knows? They might even (laughs) let you join uh, if you got, if you got the fee. Um, But the requirements are not really difficult to get into the CFR, uh, but you do submit an application. They review it. Uh, they see if your check will, will bounce or deposit and <laughs> your membership fee. And then you're sent a letter and welcome to the membership, you know, that's mm-hmm. whereas so, trilateral, they come out and they kind of seek you out because of why. What do you, what are you good at that they want you in their group? The, that's exactly right. And they've, from day one, they had an executive committee that made those decisions on who they were going to ask to be members. Uh, originally, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski was the head of that committee. He said so. Um, and they were very selective in who they asked in. They had, oh, a smattering of lawyers, a smattering of uh, press people. Um, they had uh, a few politicians, uh, important politicians were members. Um, they had, um, uh, powerful corporations, uh, represented through direct, like a chairman of the board or a director of the, of some large corporation, well, like John Deere or Caterpillar Tractor or whatever. And, um, so they had a big industrialist influence as well. Um, but they, I'm convinced with such a small membership that they were, they, they were extremely target oriented on the people that they asked to come in. You know, they didn't just randomly say, hey, yeah, I know a guy, you know, I want to, let's go talk to him. I yeah, don't let's think go have like some beers. Yeah, let's go have some beers. It wasn't like that. No, because right. they were into the new international economic order. That's right. They, they want to change it. So, and you said it was from Japan and Germany? They wanted to pull no, together? Japan and Europe. Europe in general. Europe, Europe yep. in general. 
okay. Europe in general, and North America. And when I say North America, it truly was mostly from the United States. There was a few Canadians, however. There okay. at that at the time, there was no Mexicans involved. Um, but it, you know, ninety-five percent, whatever, was from United States. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. And so, what what made all right, so they got together, they start talking about this new international economic order, and they were keeping records of this. And now they have this website, trilateral.org, that people can go and see what they're up to. And are they truly um, a force to be reckoned with in the United States, or is this more of like a UN thing, or what is, how is this? Well, how are no, they operating? They, they are. Over the years, uh, the Trilateral Commission has maintained a hammer lock on the executive branch of the American government, of the U.S. government. And nobody's really paid much attention to this. But the first overt act that they did that got my concern was the election of Jimmy Carter in 1976. Both Jimmy Carter and his running mate, Walter Mondale, were members of the Trilateral Commission. Hmm. They had been picked by Jimmy uh, by Zbigniew Brzezinski to run for president, vice president, and uh, it was a manufactured uh, campaign completely. They they were completely disingenuous. Jimmy Carter's slogan was "I will never lie to you," and of course, after he got elected, that's all he ever did was lie to the American people. He, I don't think he knew how to tell the truth, but. Um, uh, as soon as Carter stepped into office and he said, oh, I'm just a poor peanut farmer from Georgia. I don't know anybody in the belt. But what am I going to do? Oh, my gosh, you know. But he got there and within days, his cabinet was filled with members of the Trilateral Commission. So they made almost a clean sweep. In fact, at one time, there was only one member of his cabinet that was not a member of the Trilateral Commission. Really? That's, wow. what freaked, that's what freaked me out in 1976 initially. I didn't know what to do about it. I, I met uh, Tony Sutton a little bit later than that, and he he understood what was more what was going on and explained a lot of things to me. But we knew we had such a big story. We had to we had to do something to get the story out. It was huge, and nobody had, was paying attention to it. And, and um, Tony Sutton is the co-author of Trilaterals over Washington. That, you that is correct. Okay. That is right. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the Trilateral Commission had uh, a hammerlock on the executive branch right then. And then, um, you know, after that, we had um, – after Carter w- was replaced by uh, Ronald Reagan, of course. But George H.W. Bush was Reagan's running mate, and Bush was a member of the Trilateral Commission. Then Bush ascended to his own presidency for four years, and then you had – uh, Bill Clinton and Al Gore for eight years, both of them were members of the Trilateral Commission. Wow. <laughs> Clean wow. sweep again. Wow. And then with uh, with with W. Bush, uh, Bush was uh, W. was not a member of the Trilateral Commission, but his vice president Dick Cheney was. Mm. And so you had you had <laughs> the executive branch was dominated there. Obama was not a member of the Trilateral Commission, but he was surrounded by them. Every one of his national security team uh, for eight years was a member of the Trilateral Commission. It was just an incredible clean sweep of the security apparatus of the 
of the Obama administration. Now, over the years, you say, well, so what? You know, what? maybe it's just a coincidence they're all there. But listen, here's what they did. They wanted to have the trade engine, the engine of economic activity in their pocket. So here's, here's how it got expressed. The U.S. president gets to uh, pick the World Bank president um, every so often. And Europe gets to pick the IMF, the International Monetary Fund president. But we get to pick the World Bank president. Oh, okay, so They're, the president of the United States gets to pick the leader of the Federal Reserve Bank and the World Bank, you're saying? Uh, well, uh, yeah, that's correct. That's correct. Wow. Wow. So, I didn't realize that. No wonder the Department of Treasury was originally in charge of the Secret Service. Well, yeah, I know. So here you have uh, eight World Bank presidents since Jimmy Carter. Six of those have been members of the Trilateral Commission. Um. The exec, the U.S. trade representative position, which is the one, the person that, um, that negotiates all these crazy trade treaties we've had over the years, right? Mm-hmm. There have been 12 USTRs since Jimmy Carter. Nine of those have been members of the Trilateral Commission. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> you get, you get the idea of, of what they were after. This is the prize that they were after. They got unfettered access to manipulate the engine of economic activity throughout the world. And they use that to their own advantage, not to our advantage, not to your advantage, but to their advantage. Uh, another expression can be seen uh, in the national security advisors that have been appointed over the years. This is pretty amazing, too. There have been, uh, I think, uh, 18, well, uh, up, up until the end of um, Obama, there have been there were 17 national security advisors and 10 of those were members of the trilateral commission wow okay um, so this makes people think well how does this impact donald trump does he have anybody in the trilateral trilateral commission around him actually there there are uh there's currently there's three members only and this is very very lightweight i might add there are currently only three members of the Trilateral Commission that have anything to do with Trump openly. Mm-hmm. Now, behind the scenes is another story. And I don't look just at official positions. Uh, I look behind the scenes as well. And one of the things that disturbs me most is that President Trump has been consistently receiving advice from Henry Kissinger, mm-hmm. uh, who is one of the original founding members of the Trilateral Commission. Uh, he's he's really old, as you might right, right. know, uh, in his 90s, but he's still up and about. And uh, uh, Trump said that he and Kissinger have been friends for many years, and he's been talking with Kissinger about foreign policy issues. So, you know, the influence is still there, even if it's not with official positions. Um but for the most part, most of the damage has already been done by these people. And I, I have to say that just about everything that they said they were going to do, they've, they've wrecked instead of helping, uh, at least as far as our, us people are concerned, right? Right. <clears throat> they have wrecked the things that they have touched. They haven't helped them at all. Now, the policies have helped them in many ways, but it has not helped us. So Sudden and I got excited about the Trilateral Commission when we saw that the 
all of these people piling into the Carter administration. <clears throat> what disturbed us initially wasn't really rocket science. We figured, look, they got they meet in these general sessions where they have people from important people, by the way, from Europe and important people from Japan coming and meeting and discussing global policy <clears throat> and deciding on what, you know, what needs to be done globally. And then they go back to their respective countries and they implement these policies. Well, that circumvents our complete Congress. You know, Congress never got uh, wind that any of these policies were being even debated. <laughs> so, you know, wow. this is wrong for America. This is absolutely nuts. And we were hopping up and down. So you can't do that. This, this is an end run around America's sovereignty and all the protections that we have set up by the Constitution with our Congress to deal with these types of things. So they're doing in your you're telling us they're doing stuff according to their agenda, which has to do with international economics. And so are they are they involved with our CIA? Because the CIA to me seems like our economic intelligence uh, group. But there's 17 of these, uh, you know, in, intelligence agencies in the U.S. So are they embedded into the intelligence stuff that's going on? No. This, they're, are they're just they're this, just right around the president. They're just there to get the job done, and no, this, they they're they're the shadow government basically. Yeah, this, this yeah. is this is going to get a little weird now. Okay, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm pro I'm that. Gonna, Let's go. I'm Let's gonna, go. I know. I'm, I'm going to try and be very very gentle with you. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No. Um, <laughs> that's why back, we have this show. <laughs> back I know. Back in 2005. Yeah. Um, the, after this is after the Patriot Act was passed and so on, the intelligence community in America was revamped completely. The office of uh, the director of national intelligence was created, mm -hmm. and all 17 agencies, intelligence agencies that the United States had, were placed under the direct authority of the DNI. Oh. That's the director of national intelligence. This one person, he became an intelligence czar, if you will, right? And all agencies answer to him, including the NSA, the CIA, and uh, there's there's a bunch of ones people never heard of, but they are all there. They're all there on the org chart today. Um, line item budget authority was given to the DNI for every one of these agencies. They they have to, they micromanage and approve every item on the budget that gets spent on intelligence anywhere. Furthermore, the DNI was responsible for for orchestrating all of the agencies together to get them to share data uh, and to roll up the data from all these different places into a composite database for the DNI. You know, to serve everybody. Right. Well, George Bush. Remember the vice president, Dick Cheney, right? Remember the trial audit commission. George Bush was charged with setting up the office of the DNI. That was it, actually it was called the National Intelligence Agency. But um, now we just refer to it as the DNI. It refers to the office and the person as well. Well, who, who is the person who's the director of that? Do oh, we know? Oh, well, yes. The first director that Bush appointed 
to completely revamp and reorganize our entire intelligence committee commission, everything, everywhere, was a man by the name of John Negroponte. Mm. Guess what? What? A member of the Trilateral Commission. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Okay, of course, of course. Yep. So, I, you know, I asked the question of these people all along. Did John Negroponte set up the, the, the intelligence system in our country to work for us or to work for them? And the answer in my mind is no, it's not to work for us. And God knows that, you know, with all of the stories about spying on American citizens and, you know, intercepting phone calls and, and mail emails and I mean, you know, all the trouble that we're having as citizens today with the intelligence community that had nothing to do with protecting us, just the opposite. Right. It was to help them and their goals. And I would ask the same thing about all the trade policy. When when a member of the Trilateral Commission, for instance, wrote the North American Free Trade Agreement, which we know as NAFTA, one of the most disastrous trade pop, trade agreements ever, um, it was written by Carla Hills, a member of the Trilateral Commission back then. Was she negotiating for the American people or was she negotiating for the Trilateral Commission? The answer now is clear. It was not for us because, as Ross Perot said back in, when he was running against Clinton, he said, if you pass NAFTA, you will hear that giant sucking sound going south. That's right. what he said. Right, yeah. That's a famous statement. It is and, famous. And ever since NAFTA has been implemented, guess what? That's all we've heard. And we still hear it. Even today, if you listen carefully, you can still hear it. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. it's still sucking. It's still, it. it's still going. I know. Gosh. Just so, you know, all along, the tri everywhere the Trilateral Commission has wheedled its way into, they have subverted the process for their own purposes. But they didn't tell anybody. I mean, no, at least the Congress or senators or whatever, nobody seemed to care because it wasn't directly involved with politics. Right. That's a real shame. Yeah. Ron Paul, pretty well, he hit on this pretty good, I have to say. Yeah. Um, and I think he understood pretty much what this group was up to. But nobody, it was never popular to talk about him in those terms because, well, even Ron Paul, for instance, what, he was a politician. He wasn't an economist. He wasn't, uh, I don't know, he's a politician. He he dealt with Congress. So, you know, even his discussion was pretty well limited to Congress. But if I was a congressman back in those days or anywhere along the way, I would have felt absolutely insulted and I would be inflamed against this group for slapping Congress in the face and slapping the Constitution in the face and slapping the American people in the face, I would have been livid along the way and said, you just, you cannot do this. You either quit, cease and desist and get out, or we're going to run you out. But nobody ever took that position. Well, there's only 250 to 300 of them. And it seems right. like if it was, it's, what are, what makes it so, I don't know. Why, why would these people want to do this? What's their motivation to, to be associated with that group as opposed to being an American? That's a very good question. In fact, that is the $64,000 question. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> when the Trilateral Commission 
initially said that they're going to create a new international economic order. Sutton and I didn't understand what they meant. Uh, we figured that, well, they're just going to kind of rearrange everything, you know, like a slot machine. You know, you you reset the odds of mm-hmm. the slot machine to favor you whenever you, you know, pull the handle. Yeah. And we, that, we thought that's kind of what they're going to do. And, and we had good reason to believe that at the time. But we did not understand historic technocracy. But in the history of the world, there has never been a new economic system other than the one we have right now in one form or another, which is, uh, you know, a market driven supply and demand based economic system. And <clears throat> going back throughout history, you will not find another economic model that's ever been used other than the one we have. Now, there, you know, there was different types of accounting for it. The Indians used to use beads and right. sticks and yeah. sticks that they cut notches into. Right. The but they still. Stick. That's right. But it was still uh, it was still, uh, you know, you and me making a deal. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we do that as consenting adults. I make something you want it. I sell it to you for a price, whatever we negotiate. And that's it. Um, <clears throat> so you have to ask the question, what do they mean by new international economic system? Did, did somebody come up with a brainchild here that, that we don't know about? Was there something else, you know, designed along the way? Well, here's, there was. That happened to be historic technocracy that was invented back in the 1930s during the heat of the Great Depression at Columbia University, of all places, where all good things progressive have happened over the decades. And <clears throat> scientists and engineers got together and said, capitalism and free enterprise are dead and they're dying or well, as good as dead. And we need to save the world by creating a brand new economic model based on resources, not supply and demand, not a market, not a market economy, but as, but a resource based economic system. And they wanted to have energy as the currency for their economic system. They called it technocracy. And it was very popular back in the thirties. There were, there was as many as 500,000 card carrying members and dues paying members of the technocracy organization in the 1930s. It was huge, especially in the West. Canada was really big on it as well. And um, looking back through the timeline of history, technocracy was the only alternative economic system that has ever been attempted or created, if you will. Okay. From scratch. That's it. There's been nothing else. And, you know, you could joke, a person could joke and say, well, technocracy, that's, that was the stupidest thing that anybody ever came up with. But nevertheless, if you look back through history, you'll find there's not one other economic system other than technocracy that's ever been postulated. Well, <clears throat> here's what happened. And this is in my view, and this is the way, this is what my book is about, Technocracy Rising. The Trilateral Commission saw an opportunity to use technocracy in such a way that they could find tremendous advantage for themselves. And so uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, when, before he got hooked up with Rockefeller, he was a young political professor, uh, political science professor at Columbia, Columbia University. Imagine that. Same place. Same place. Um, <clears throat> he wrote a book called Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. We knew, even back then, Sutton and I knew that that book was what endeared Rockefeller 
to Brzezinski. It was kind of a beauty and the beast thing, right? Uh, Brzezinski had the brains. Rockefeller had the money. (laughs) It was a marriage. It was a marriage made not in heaven, but it was a marriage made somewhere. And uh, this book uh, said basically that America was going to have a role in something in the future called the technotronic era. And that we're in between phases right then in 1970. We're in between phases. When I discovered historic technocracy, the thought occurred to me, I wonder if Brzezinski, being from Columbia, I wonder if Brzezinski was using the word technotronic to really mean technocratic. Mm. Yeah, that's a fair question. Mm -hmm. So I went back and read his book again, probably for the fourth time by that time, but I read it again. And lo and behold, yes. The answer was yes. It's exactly what he's talking about. Using technology to bring in a new economic system that would be based on resources rather than on market-driven forces. Well, we can look back historically from today back to 1973 and do a little forensic analysis of what's happened. What have they done to, uh, you know, if, if that's the theory, what have they done that might be, you know, that might support that thought? Well, here's one. Brenton Woods, maybe? I don't know. Well, no. Uh, yeah, Brenton Woods is interesting, but that that's not it necessarily. Okay. <clears throat> In 1983 to 1987, the United Nations commissioned um, a study group, and they called it the Bruntland Commission. The idea was to come up with a document. They did produce a book called Our Common Future. Uh, they were challenged to come up with a document that would delineate a resource-based economic system. That was the United Nations. Mm-hmm. And so uh, at the, in 1987, that terminated, and they produced this book, Our Common Future. In 1992, the first Earth Summit took place in Rio de Janeiro that produced a document known as Agenda 21. Okay. The United Nations said then and after that the only reason that Agenda 21 document was possible was because of Brundtland, the Brundtland Commission and his, and his work, Our Common Future. That's where the doctrine of sustainable development came from. That's where the doctrine of property rights, et cetera, et cetera, in Agenda 21 came from. It came from the Brundtland Commission. And the United Nations has blatantly praised the Brundtland Commission and its leader, Grew Harlan Brundtland, for being the visionaries that saw the light and that provided the doctrine, you know, and the and the the um, what do you want to call it? The concrete to walk on for Agenda sure. Twenty One. <clears throat> well, Grew Harlan Brundtland was from Europe. She was prime, uh, former prime minister of Denmark. Just so happens that she was a member of the Trilateral Commission. Naturally, sure. <laughs> Naturally. Okay. So isn't that interesting? So digging so they, down into it, I could see the policy uh, being generated by the within the bowels, if you will, of the Trilateral Commission 
to feed the entire new economic system to the United Nations and let them be the henchmen, if you will. Mm-hmm. Take it to the world, basically, they said. It's not just for Europe and North America and for for uh, uh, for Japan. Take it to the world. Let's get the whole world involved. So, mm, isn't that interesting? That's exactly what's happened. They took the doctrine of sustainable development and they took it to the whole world. Another interesting little tidbit, by the way, I just discovered this about a year ago. Back in 2004, mm-hmm. on May 1st, the United Nations General Assembly passed a resolution. It was Resolution 3201. This blew me away when I saw it because 1974 was only six months after the formation of the Trilateral Commission. (laughs) Didn't take them long. This declaration, the name of this declaration, is Declaration on the Establishment of a New International Economic Order. Wow. Wow. I just, when I saw that, I said, yep, that fits perfectly. They started to feed this doctrine even as early as 1974. They finished it up in the mid-80s. The traction got started um, with um, with Agenda 21, and, of course, we, we could trace history forward from there to yeah. see where that's led to 2030 Agenda and New Urban Agenda and so on. But listen, last year, excuse me, 2015, Okay. The head of climate change at the United Nations, a very powerful woman, her name was Christiana Figueres. Uh-huh. She was the executive secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. She was in a press release in Europe. She made this statement bluntly. This is a direct quote. She said, this is the first time in the history of mankind that we are setting ourselves the task of intentionally, within a defined period of time, to change the economic development model that has been reigning for at least 150 years since the Industrial Revolution, close quote. Was she a member of the Trilateral Commission? No, she wasn't. Oh, okay. I'm almost surprised. <laughs> I am <laughs> <She's too>. not. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but you see, the goal comes out. It's been very consistent, hasn't it? From 1974, basically saying the same thing. Now they're saying... They have a timetable, they have intention, and they have the means to do it. And you don't have to read between the lines to see what this woman is saying. She has declared war on capitalism and free enterprise. (laughs) Outright war. Yeah, I'm sitting here taking copious notes as you speak. I've got a notebook with three pages full of stuff that you (laughs) just said. No, this is great. This is fantastic. Now, I just wanted to point out, when you said back in the 1930s, we'll backtrack a little, that this group from coming out of Columbia University, they were proclaiming capitalism instead, and they wanted to do this resource-based type of economy with energy as currency. Now, is that why we rolled over into the petrodollar as opposed to the gold, having backing our currency? Did- no. no. Actually, yeah, I, I, should, I should explain that there was no continuity in, in policy between the uh, technocracy group and policy 
that was implemented between, say, 1935 and, say, 1965 okay. or even 1970, for that matter. Okay, okay. Techn- technocrats had completely fallen out of favor. They, they, Nobody's paying attention to them. They thought they were a bunch of crackpots. It wasn't until Zbigniew Brzezinski came along that there was attention given to it again, but it was not under the name of technocracy oh. at the time. I. Do we have time to tell a little story about why oh, technocracy is not in yes. the history books? Yes, we okay. do. We've got plenty of time, and I want to hear every single word. I'm, I'm very, very interested in this. Go ahead. Well, you remember Randolph Hearst. Yeah. He was the media giant back in the 30s and 40s. Virtually every major publication across the country was owned by Randolph Hearst. He was a bit of a nut, too, I might, I might add. Very eccentric and <clears throat> somewhat opinionated, um, but he was the man. And the Hearst organization was the big juggernaut of that day. <clears throat> well, when Columbia University picked up the technocracy study group in 1932, Randolph Hearst just went like, wow, this is the hottest thing we've ever had. And he's trying to sell newspapers, as you might imagine, in 1932. They were hurting. Mm-hmm. So technocracy came along. It offered him a way to sell newspapers, and he started accepting interviews um, <clears throat> from members of the technocracy group. And so they got a lot of press out of the, you know, out of the the, the Hearst Empire. Mm-hmm. And after Columbia University threw the technocracy study group out because one of its founders was discovered to be a fraud. Uh, He said he had an engineering degree. Turns out he didn't at all. Um, He's just a blowhard. He's a con man. His name was uh, Howard Scott. And uh, when Columbia threw him out, Columbia was really burned. And Randolph Hearst also realized that he'd been suckered because he felt that his newspaper had been played by a con man. I can kind of understand how he might feel that way, honestly. But um, he sent out a memo to all of his newspapers across country. And he said, if you ever use the word technocracy again, you are fired. That's what he said. And so guess what? There was no stories. We never heard about it again. (laughs) You never heard about it again. So after that 25-year window of history goes by historians go back to see what happened they go back to do the forensic study well what was important what are we going to write the in the textbook here they didn't find anything on technocracy it just disappeared and so they stopped getting any stories published period about 1930 about 1933 and a half there was not one story nationally produced on technocracy after that <laughs> <laughs> so so that's why that's why you don't see anything in the history books. That's that's very interesting. One guy gets irritated and that's that. Yeah, it, I know. He just just like the guillotine came down and cut the whole thing off. Well, all that to say is technocracy was not very popular with certain people after that, especially in the halls of political science whatever. The early technocrats in 1933 <clears throat> actually called for uh, for President-elect Roosevelt to declare himself dictator so that he could dismiss Congress and implement technocracy. 
Oh, so they're, <laughs> so they're really about the Constitution. And, okay, gotcha. All right. Oh, no, that, oh, that was, they didn't care about that. that <laughs> That's was so what I'm saying. Oh, my gosh. These people are – all right. So we know what we're dealing with. Okay. Just silly stuff that, that they say. You know, that, <laughs> they wanted to get rid of the Constitution. They want to get rid of Congress, get rid of the president and every other political body that we have. Mm-hmm. And they wanted the scientists and engineers to, to run everything themselves. Oh. Um, so that's kind, of, that's kind of akin to how people are listening to the U.N. and the climate panel. And there's different groups like the, um, you know, the the group in the United States that uh, oversees the medications and the pharmaceutical companies in the United States. People tend to put a lot of uh, credibility in what those groups say. And so these 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 people that are for this technocracy – they would want people like that to run the, the world, I guess, right? Well, that's exactly right. We see a lot of the large corporations in the world today are pretty much completely bought into the technocracy idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see them running their companies that way. They run their companies more like a scientific dictatorship than they do uh, what you'd consider an old-fashioned business. Um, <clears throat> just as an example... Um, the culture at Google, for instance, and the, the chairman of Google, by the way, Eric Schmidt, right. uh, is a recent member, a newly added member to the, the Trout Auto Commission. Uh, really? But, oh, wow. Yeah. yeah ouch. And they, they, <laughs> they, they sought him out, of course, right? Oh, he yeah. He didn't seek them out. They said, hey, you at Google, come on in. That's right. That's right. Okay. Exactly it right. only he, makes he sense. Fit. He fit yeah. very well. But the culture at Google right now, there's a big battle going on at Google. Somebody wrote a paper about diversity. Uh, and the guy was pretty honest, blunt paper, but he got fired for writing a paper on diversity from the company that pri- prides itself on being big on diversity. <laughs> Go mm-hmm. figure. But here's the thing. Within, within the culture of Google, if they discover that you are conservative, they will fire you on the spot. This is coming out right now in the news, right today. This is, this is a story that's coming out right now. And somebody now has been interviewed from Facebook, said pretty much it's the same thing at Facebook. If well, they Google, discover Google owns they, Facebook, right? No, Google doesn't. No, Google and Facebook are separate. Oh, Google owns YouTube. Google owns, owns YouTube and a bunch of other stuff. Right, as well. right, 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 right. Okay. Because so, I was know, having problems putting my um, stuff on YouTube. And every yeah. single time I put any of these Shadow Citizen shows up on YouTube, they would get denied. I couldn't monetize them. And it was to the point where I was like, what the heck am I doing? We're not swearing. We're not, yeah. we're literally not exploiting anyone. We're not, we're not even talking politics. We're just talking about stuff that people might be interested in. And it never ever is able to be monetized. Yeah. And not that I was hoping I'd make millions of dollars off of it, but when I found out what they allow to be monetized mm-hmm. on YouTube, it was starting to really get me kind of ill. Um, and then it just recently somebody sent me to the other night a video about this guy's paper and how the the mindset in Google is has very specific about what they want and what they don't want and that makes sense because of the YouTube yeah. stuff. Yeah. But this is the corporate culture that they've mm-hmm. developed <clears throat> that if you that you have to have this postmodern mentality that diversity is everything and social justice and all that kind of stuff. And if you have a conservative viewpoint, you cannot exist there, and they will not allow you to exist there. 
Interesting. Uh, of course, the guy that got fired is turning around to sue him right now. I, I hope he just whoops him to half to death, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's but, the American way afterward. <laughs> it's the American way, I know. Uh, so, but large corporations like Google and other global corporations have adopted a culture today that bears little resemblance to what we used to think of as business. They're, they're really kind of turned into a scientific dictatorship where if you don't do exactly what they tell you to do, like they tell you to do it, you will be just simply be fired. And, um, you know, this kind of corporate culture, it exists everywhere. I know you had a background in some large, uh, a couple of large companies. You probably can identify with some of what I'm talking about. It's their way or the highway. Yeah. <clears throat> so, and, you know, and to some extent, if you're a business owner, you could kind of understand that mentality because, hey, it's my business. I can do what I want to do with it. You know, if you don't like my way, then get out. But. There's a limit to that kind of thinking where it becomes dangerous um, because the culture turns into a cult. Mm. Then you're in trouble. Then you got big problems. And this is kind of what's happened with, uh, you know, with the whole sustainable development thing is turning into a cult, like a religion. And if you don't go along with it, you're branded as a denier. That's what Al Gore does with his global warming stuff. He says, you deniers out there. He actually said this. He said deniers deserve to be punished. Wow. That sounds like the Inquisition, doesn't it? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> you know, a little bit, you, yeah. You witches out there that don't believe like we believe, you need to be punished. Maybe now, burned at the stake. <laughs> now, of course, they always say, um, well, this is science. You know, th these people are scientists and this, they've devoted their life to the scientific method and how could that be wrong? Because we've been brought up to come to school and learn about the scientific method. And because we don't really understand what global warming is, we have to look to these experts. And so how how come there's all these experts who are supposedly scientists that are not telling the truth that like, why, why would this happen? Yeah, that's a, that, that's, boy, that's a great question. Um, you have to kind of understand what scientism is and where it came from, I think, to understand this. And tech, both technocracy and transhumanism rely on an undergirding of scientism. It's a philosophy. It's a religion. And were it not for scientism, there would be no technocracy and there would be no transhumanism. But here's what here's where scientism started. It was back in the early 1800s with a French philosopher by the name of Henri de Saint-Simon. And he also is known as the father of technocracy, by the way. But he was the father of scientism. He wrote back then, just a short quote, direct quote from one of his writings, one of his papers. He said, a scientist, my dear friends, is a man who foresees. It is because science provides the means to predict that it is useful. And the scientists are superior to all other men. Close quote. Wow. Okay. Now, if you can believe that and and give a hearty amen to it, then you may possibly be a technocrat. <laughs> but but you know, I have big I have big trouble with a statement like this. Can can a scientist really predict anything? 
Um, they can is, can a scientist foresee any better than you and I? And are they really superior to other men? I say no, they're not at all. But this was the philosophy that Saint-Simon put into put into, uh, play, if you will, that was picked up later by men throughout the late 1800s, early 1900s, <clears throat> that the engineering profession, the scientific profession, somehow was elevated above mere mortal men. Mm. It, was not, it was not all of them, by the way. It's some of them. Even to this day, we can't blame all scientists and engineers for being technocrats because they're not. Plenty of them are just practicing real science. That is real empirical science, which is a wonderful thing. But scientism goes beyond empirical science and starts making assumptions, predictions, if you will, about society, the future of humanity, how things ought to run. And only they can figure that out. Thank you very much, because they have PhDs, I guess. And this is this is crazy. It's not science at all. You know, when somebody like Al Gore says that the science is settled on on climate change, on global warming, that is an oxymoron to a real scientist, to a real empirical science, because a, a real scientist will say the science is never settled. Right. It's always open to scrutiny. It's always open to debate. It's always open to challenge. And they welcome challenge. But not Al Gore and not climate change, not, not global warming. That science is settled. And if you don't believe it the way he believes it, then you are a denier who deserves to be published. That's a religious proposition. He's turned it into a religion where the climate science is a god, and he's the priest that stands in between that god and the people. That's a good and he's telling the people he's telling the people what they have to believe. That's a good analogy. Okay, so just to to kind of get our heads around this, scientism is a different thing than technocracy, but people that are into technocracy are into scientism. Yes, what the way I would the way I would phrase it again is that <clears throat> scientism is the philosophical basis okay. for both technocracy and transhumanism. Okay. And at our next hour, if you're going to stay with us, I hope we're going to go yeah. into transhumanism, I hope. So, all right. So we got, you say it again, scientism is the basic philosophy that drives technocracy and transhumanism. Transhumanism. That's okay. right. And I'll say it this way, that, that technocracy intends to transform society. Okay. Transhumanism intends to transform humanity. Okay. And of course, humanity lives in society, right? Yeah. <laughs> gotta have, gotta have people. But that's kind of the way it lines up. Okay. Good. So my notebook's getting nice and full. This is awesome. All right. Good. 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 Now, um, you were talking about Google and every. They're trying to get. Uh, the different corporations to run more like scientific dictatorships. Do you see that happening in the United States or now that Donald Trump's here? Do you, cause there has been this big, I see on Facebook a lot, people that are calling out people that are deniers or they're not into science. They, in fact, they had a march, a march for science 
fairly recently um, to it was kind of the people that were against Trump in the last election. They had this march for science. And I was thinking, yeah. well, what what type of science are we talking about? What is this? But I thought in my mind, I thought it was just a way to get people more riled up against Donald Trump. Um, but it wasn't very well defined for me. But when you're talking about scientism, I was like, you know what? This might have something to do that, with that march that they just did might have something to do with scientism. Hmm. Oh, it might well. The, uh, uh, you know, a person can be affected by scientism even if he doesn't know what it, how to define it, right? Yeah, he, yeah. He may not even know what it is. But when you, for instance, when you buy into uh, the, the religious aspect of global warming and you say that science is turned off, that's not science at all. That's pseudoscience. And there, there are thousands of scientists throughout the world that dispute Al Gore. Totally. Yeah. Yes, they're they're credible, you know, advanced, skilled, whatever, multiple PhDs in some cases, scientists who say that Al Gore is full of beans. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, when you just exclude all those other scientists, you you just ceased from being a scientist yourself, and now you're making a religious proposition, and that's where it falls into the idea of scientism. <laughs> okay, you know, it's like. This is not science at all. You can call it science, but that doesn't mean it is. Okay. You know, it, it, you could go stand in your garage. It doesn't mean you're a car. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, you know, their definition of science is way off base. They don't know what it is. Truly. Mm-hmm. 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 Okay. So that's going to roll into transhumanism. Now, what is that? That's when people are, you had said, it's when people are going to transform the human race with well, yes, the technology. Trans, or, tra- yeah, the, trans, the transhuman movement has been around for a long, long time. Until science began to advance probably in the mid-1990s, um, Science, uh, the, the idea of transhumanism was mostly just kind of a metaphysical, philosophical thing. Mm-hmm. But the idea was to uh, change the nature of humanity by applying technology to humanity in order to escape death. Wow. Okay, everybody, I want everybody to hang on over the break. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about transhumanism with our guest, Patrick Wood. All right. Well, thank you for hanging with us over the break. My head feels like it's going to explode after talking to Patrick Wood. And I'm glad he's here for the second hour to follow up with everything we just learned about. Patrick Wood, if you didn't miss the first hour, he's the editor-in-chief of Technocracy News and Trends. The website for that is technocracy.news, not technocracy. Don't do .com, do .news technocracy.news and he's the author of a book called technocracy rising the trojan horse of global transformation and i'm thrilled that he's with us i i took tons and tons of notes while he was talking he's a treasure trove of information about the group that is running the show behind the presidency in the united states and um 
how they're looking to transform the world, the, the whole entire planet, into a new international economic order, which George H.W. Bush had called the New World Order, famously in one of his speeches. Um, we had left off at the break. And we we're starting to talk a little bit about something called transhumanism. We'd already talked about scientism and technocracy in general, but then we sort of mentioned the word transhumanism and, uh, we were gonna, uh, Mr. Wood was gonna start telling us about that. So if you would, you could pick up right there. I'd appreciate it. Well, we'll take a shot at it. Okay. And, okay. Uh, there's there's so much more probably to be said about technocracy in general, but oh, we're good. we'll come I, back to all but that. But no, I don't. We don't need to no. come back to it necessarily. This show, maybe we'll do another show sometime and we'll go deeper in it. But it is useful for people to see the one-two punch here that that these two areas, technocracy and transhumanism, are related to each other. They both involve science, and they both have as a kind of an underpinning philosophy of scientism and I would say they're both misapplications of true science of empirical science so there's a lot in common right off the bat whereas uh, transhumans the, the movement the transhuman movement seeks to transform humanity the human condition through the application of technology um, <clears throat> whereas technocracy uh, seeks to change the nature of society through the application of techno technology. He says it's, it's, it's very similar. Mm -hmm. People versus the system that they live in. Okay. And you could say, I suppose, on one hand, if you had the perfect technocracy and people like you and I had to live in it, we'd spoil it for them right away because <laughs> we're not we're not particularly suited to live in that kind of a society. You need you need a transformed humanity that would live in that kind of a you know a crazy place, um, but we would do very poor. So, <clears throat> transhumanism is the application of science to change the fabric of the human condition. For the most part, if you cut right through the quick, they intend to defeat death. And they intend to become immortal okay. by the application of science. And they have all kinds of ways they explain this. They're going to, <clears throat> for instance, uh, they might download their brain into a computer and then maybe re-upload it into a cyborg to where they could travel the universe or go and do anything they wanted to do as electronic bits, if you will. Um, they talk about things like, <clears throat> um, you know, body transplants, <laughs> um, reanimating re people that have already died by recreating their memories and stuff like that. It, it sounds a little far out to somebody who's never really looked at this before. You say, what kind of nutsy thing are you talking about? Frankenstein-ish, right? That's what just... it's, it is like Frankenstein. Let me, but let me tell you the the um, the seriousness or the magnitude of people that are studying how to do this in universities around the world. A new department has sprung up in the scientific area. 
It's called Converging Technologies, Converging Science or Converging Technologies. And the tagline is Converging Technologies for Improving Human Performance. Mm. It combines four different departments within most universities that have science departments. It, it takes the, 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 um, the biology department, the information technology department, the cognitive science department, and the nanotechnology engineering department, and it rolls them into one single scientific discipline called converging technologies. Interesting. Together, <clears throat> these four disciplines work out ways to apply technology to the human condition. You could call on any university. I dare, I just dare say, just make this, this blanket statement. Any university that you can get a hold of, your state university, your, uh, uh, or maybe, you know, Ivy League if you're back east or whatever, but, um, <clears throat> call them up and ask them. Do you have a department of convergent technologies? And they'll say, yes, we do. And can I talk to him, please? Sure you can. <laughs> and, well, maybe they won't let you talk to him. I don't know. But um, this is the rage around the world today, converging technologies. So if you think about it just for a minute, <clears throat> what's in common between these different areas? Well, the biological sciences pertain to DNA, things like that, especially DNA. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, DNA is known to be a digital code of sorts. Right. There's four building blocks that make it up. It, it's very um, adaptable to computer modeling because it is like a computer code. Then, you, of course, you have information technologies, which is computer. Mm -hmm. Then you have cognitive technologies, which is the science of the mind, where they believe, where these people believe that the mind is nothing more than just a computer and that it could be analyzed and eventually modeled and, you know, all your mind could be sucked out eventually and re-imported into another medium. <clears throat> and then you have the nanotechnology area, which is the study of, uh, you know, atomic particles. The nanotechnology people believe that they can use um, the, the, the nanotechnology, um, the practical application of it, practical science, to manipulate matter directly, where you can cause matter to take different forms at will <clears throat> using information technology. And, of course, they're using information technology now to edit DNA, including human DNA. Mm -hmm. And they're using different tools and techniques to affect the mind. <laughs> uh, in fact, in, in the Silicon Valley right now, the big, big thing is called mind hacking, mind hacking, where they take all kinds of different drugs and concoctions and stuff to expand their mind, you know, so they can think faster. They can think, you know, more creatively. They can think longer than anybody else. You know, back when I was in college, <clears throat> it wasn't legal, but we, we had a drug called Benny's. 
And if you could get some bennies, by golly, to take before an exam, well, you could stay up all night and you could study like crazy. <laughs> and, that's, and then the next day you could flunk the test anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but you felt great while you were doing it. All oh, right. yeah. <laughs> so, so nanotechnology right now is the – uh, the rage across universities around the world, and they're racing to provide solutions. This is a complete, um, well, what, what's the right word for it? This is a complete um, runaround from what anybody would have expected in the first place. Remember, most of these universities are privately funded, right? right. Well, not privately, excuse me. They're 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 funded by by public money, tax money. Our University of Arizona here, or uh, excuse me, Arizona State University <clears throat> is so big into this, it's not even funny. All their money comes from taxes and tuition. But don't yet, the people doing research on this stuff get grants from private foundations? And public. And public, they okay. They do. Absolutely, they do. Yeah. They do. That, yeah, people like, the, you know, groups like the Rockefeller All right. Brothers Fund. <laughs> um. Yes, indeed, they do get grants. Mm -hmm. But they're busy working this technology for something that will only affect, in the end, probably a very small number of people anyhow. <clears throat> and they didn't do it with any public debate on whether or not it was smart to do it. They just did it, mm -hmm. period. They just did it. Well, it sounds and like so, stuff that DARPA is working on. DARPA, DARPA started this. Dar yeah. DARPA started the whole thing. Right. This isn't when I say, yeah, this this is new. DARPA was the one really that pulled the plug on this back in 2002. When they set the flag in the ground that they were going to seek human enhancement. To create super soldiers. Right. Now, that's nutsy in itself. But, you know, the transhumanists yeah. picked up on that and said, holy mackerel, we've got DARPA on our side now. <laughs> and all this money is going to start flowing, and it did. And so this whole business of converging technologies is really only about 15 years old, if even. And yet today we see pronouncements almost every day in the, in the media stories that once you kind of see this, you can't unsee it, right? Once you see what transhumanism is and what converging technology is all about, it's unmistakable when a story pops up, you'll, you'll recognize it immediately. It's coming out of one of these groups. <laughs> that's, right. that's exactly where it's coming from. Right. Now, could somebody argue that this is all of human evolution has been humans interacting with some sort of technology and it's furthering their development? Could you argue that or is this different? No, I could. <clears throat> Do we have time for another story? Oh, yeah, we've got plenty of time. Go ahead. That's okay. why you're here, sir. Go for it. <laughs> well, this is a story of a different color. Uh, well, no, it's not off color. Excuse me. I shouldn't say it that way. <laughs> um, but you might, you weren't, you weren't probably, yeah, I know you're not, I should say, I don't want to give any secrets away, but I know you weren't around when a man, from France had a supposedly had a visit visit from aliens. His name was Rael. 
And <clears throat> what year? What year was that? This was 1974. Okay. No, no, I was around. Okay. Okay. But go ahead. Well, Rael was a nut. Everybody thought he was a nut back then. He said he had a vision. Well, not a vision. He was visited by aliens. They had an important message to tell him, and they wanted him to be the one who delivered the message to mankind. He now has a cult. He well, actually formed a cult right away. It's a very bizarre cult, by the way. It's it's got a lot of bizarre sexual practices in it, and you know other things that you might expect of some cults. The guy's a real nut, in, in my opinion. <clears throat> but the message that he got, that he claims he got, so I'm I'm sure he didn't really have a visit from an alien, but that's neither here nor there. His story is this. He was visited by aliens, and they said their name <clears throat> was Elohim. Mm, okay. They e said that, too? H-I-M. They said now, that. Isn't that from said, the Bible? That's what he said. Isn't that that is. Said? Yeah, okay. Go ahead. That's what, that's what God calls himself in Genesis in chapter 1. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Elohim. They said that the Elohim were scientists from another planet. Okay. Who were banned from radical experimentation on their home planet. Because they had an idea that they wanted to create life from scratch. They'd invented this thing called DNA. <laughs> and they wanted to invent life. And so they got the home planet to agree to let them go to another planet to experiment. So they came to Earth. And they created man in their image, I might add. But, you know, they created man, and but they had to leave the experiment alone to see how the experiment would turn out. So they went away. And they haven't been back until they visited Rael. And so now they say, <clears throat> this is him testifying, that they made some mistakes in version 1.0 of humans. They realize that now. They were argumentative. They, they tended to want to kill each other from time to time, which was self-defeating. And they had personality problems, <laughs> you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? That's good old mankind. And that someday they said they're going to come back and they're going to give us a technology to create humans 2.0. Okay. Humans 2.0. He said that in his testimony. This is what this is what Rael says. Okay. They told him. And <laughs> that the flaws in humanity from the get-go are going to be corrected. And everybody's going to be one big happy family. And so <clears throat> what transhumanists have picked up on this Rael story is that we now have the technology to edit DNA. And they say, well, where did that come from? And Rael would say, well, that, that came from the aliens, most likely. <laughs> and that now that they can edit DNA, the same scientist that once upon a time said evolution is the only way that humans got on planet Earth, they're now saying that we can control evolution ourselves now. In other words, there was no designer before, but now there is us, 
And we can now create humanity any way we want because we can now edit DNA. Mm -hmm. This is this is crazy stuff, but this is a fundamental story to transhumanism today. They look at a guy like Rael and they say, well, he told it like it was. Do, and, do, do you think this Rael person would have been visited by not necessarily, maybe it was aliens, I don't, but maybe it was somebody in this movement, the Scientology, not Scientology, science, <laughs> um, the trans, you know, this tr whole transhumanism and scientism and do you think that was a, something he, he encountered somebody from there and they maybe drugged him or maybe he was on drugs or, and it got him thinking like that? You know, it's really hard to say. I don't know. I've never, I've never really tried to speculate. Uh, he might have just had a hallucination. Yeah. You know, he could have, he could have stumbled on some magic mushrooms or something out in the field and, you know, had himself a king size trip. Yeah. Uh, in which he hallucinated. Uh, or he could have been visited by uh, some type of a demonic, uh, you know, spiritually demonic community that convinced him that they were real, physical. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. You know, it could have just maybe it was just a hoax and some friends pulled a trick on him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't yeah, the, know. The, the fact that he used that word from the Bible kind of says, well, that, that yeah. is a little I know that is just a little strange. But the idea of transhumanism today is to hijack evolution mm -hmm. and create mankind in a new image. And genetic manipulation has a lot to do with this, um, <clears throat> but it also is affected by nanotechnology as well as mind science technology and information technology. Okay. Um, and you say, wow, that sounds really off the planet. Well, it is off the planet. It's interesting that many of these transhumans, who in many cases are also hardcore technocrats, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> one of their big goals in life is to colonize Mars. They right. want to fly. They want to go to Mars. Right. And people are excited about that for sure. Well, there was, yeah, the uh, one, somebody put out an ad for, uh, for a volunteer to go to Mars, <laughs> to be one of the first to go. They had over 250,000 applications. Yeah, people are excited. Like, we're getting off. I'm blowing this clam bake. I want to go try something else. So, yeah, there's people. And I, who is that? Uh, SpaceX, right? Aren't they? Yeah, yeah that's, they're that's, ready. That's right. That's, that's Elon Musk. Yeah, they're ready to go. That's right. And there's a bunch of them from Silicon Valley that are right in there with him, investing with him and doing their own thing. Peter Thiel is another guy. Right, right. That, uh, that is investing billions in different types of things. Um, Why but, do you think they're interested in going off planet like that? I mean, there's got to be some financial. It's not just like, hey, this is a good idea. Here, let me throw a gazillion dollars at this. They must see some financial benefit to this. No, I don't think there is. There's just a philosophical benefit that they really believe that the future of mankind is not on this planet. Oh. They believe that eventually that mankind is going to completely destroy this planet and it will be a burning hulk of, of coal. Okay. And that uh, the only future for mankind is out in the stars. Mm -hmm. This is, again, this is part of a cult belief. 
okay. that has been kicking around in one form or another for centuries. So they're in, in their mind, this whole global warming thing is really it's don't even buy, it can't be fixed in their mind. So you might as well just jump off the planet and go somewhere else. That's their backdoor plan. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yep. All right. Yep. Now that money that's because I'm always interested in the money that's moving around this space stuff because it seems the money is coming from uh, put when there's pork in the bills in the United Sta- States. You, everybody's heard about pork. There's like we're going to fit some money in somewhere. But as soon as these bills start going out, like President Trump signed something um, about space weather. He signed something about space weather. And that now, I don't know if he signed it, but it's supposed to be going off to him. And it went off to the Intelligence Committee. And that, of course, get all these different agencies now flocking to the bill and trying to get their fingers on it so that they can get funding. And it's all about space weather. And it has to do with because if they want to go off planet, they've got to figure out how to navigate this stuff, but also I'm finding out it has to do with rectifying man-made climate change. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be coming up with these ideas that have already been floated about spraying um, sulfuric acid into our upper atmosphere to help Mm -hmm. stop climate change. That to me sounds like let's just kill everybody on the planet. that, but I'm not a scientist. Like I said, the scientific method might up. No, no, no. What comes, what goes up must come down. So, um, I'm always interested to see how this money gets moving. And that's why I was interested to know about the trilateral commission and how it kind of did the backdoor thing to get itself embedded into our government and get these policies moving for the whole world, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's what these how that's how I'm jumping around in my brain that, with the stuff you're telling me. Well, this is a good thing. Imagine the size of the market that existed prior to the United Nations jumping up. You had essentially the industrialized world being Japan, the United States, and Europe. That was it. Everything else was just minor by comparison. China wasn't anything yet. Russia was still an economic depression. Africa's never been substantive on anything. So those are the three economic markets, right? And you have to trade with each other. So if you see that your market is limited, look at what the market is today. Now that the United Nations has got 193 nations of the world signed on to uh, 2030 agenda for the new urban agenda and for the climate, the Paris Climate Change Agreement. Imagine now all the money that is sprung to go into circulation because of what they have done with the United Nations. You have the entire world now, don't you? Mm-hmm. The whole world is involved. Taxpayer money and, and you know central bank money is flowing from every nation on the planet now into the pockets of the global elite. They couldn't have done this, except they did it the way they did it. It never would have happened voluntarily just because, oh, hey, that's a great idea. Let's all go off and do that. No, that's not the way it happened at all. They were conned. All the nations of the world were conned into saying, hey, this green economy stuff, folks, man, y'all get into this. This is great. You're all going to make, you know, we're going to, we're going to transform this whole thing. And they all jumped on it without asking key questions. 
but now it's kind of too late because they're all spending their money and and uh <clears throat> what's happening in the process here this by the way this important discussion to technocracy as well resources of the world are being gobbled up by the global elite and by the united nations they're gobbling up resources like there's no tomorrow it's incredible yeah tell me about that i know that they have the united nations um cities like they they were trying to make newport rhode island a united nations protected city but I, I remember when they tried to do that, and I was like, they're trying to get all the ports in the world. Like they have a port in um, Uruguay, just this little old port, because there's a they they went to the, there because there was some sort of uh, like a lighthouse. So the United Nations had to be right there. And every time, all over the world, there's these United Nations culturally protected areas, but they happen to all be very important ports. At least historically. Yes. Hmm. That, that yeah, ports, of course, transport all of the goods on ships. Yeah. Control over the ports is like control over the airports or you know any other key infrastructure. Hmm. And uh, the ports were great targets for them to uh, you know to latch onto. <clears throat> but um, resources. Consider during the Obama administration, see if I can get the stats on this. I had a, a sheet up on this a little bit ago. I don't know if I still have it. Um, during the Obama administration, in any case, Obama was able to uh, take 265 million acres of sovereign U.S. soil take it away from the states, take it away from individuals, and put it into different national portfolios. 265 million acres. That's more than any president before him. But today, our federal government owns over, well, at least, say, in the West, something like almost 70% of the land mass in the West is owned by the federal government. States get no tax money. Private citizens in many cases can't even go on the land. And it's not quite so bad in the East, but, um, you know, the constitution doesn't provide for our federal government to own land at all. Right. Now you have around the world, the world bank is going out with the international monetary fund in tow to talk to third world countries who have been buried in debt thanks to the World Bank. And they're going to these countries to say, look, we know you're never going to pay off the debt. We have a deal for you. It's called debt for nature swap. Yeah, give us your land. Okay. We'll forgive you. We'll waive the interest on your loan if you agree to spend the money to uh, maintain large chunks of your land in UN, you know, World Heritage Zones, for instance, mm-hmm. or Nature Preserves, for instance. The land is basically taken away from the country and put into a trust that they can't touch and they're paying to maintain the secrecy of it. And they're, these, the World Bank is going around to country after country around the world now 
talking them into getting rid of their debt in favor of debt for nature swaps. Interesting. This, this is a the, the, this is a land grab of the largest magnitude in the history of the world. And, and I'm convinced that this was David Rockefeller's dream from the get-go was to get a hold of the resources directly. Not just the money, but the resources. Okay, so when President Obama took over all that land, well, his administration, I'm sure it wasn't him personally, yeah. but his administration took over all this land, were they doing that to make it so that, you know how we had tried to do Fort Knox and we have to say, oh, we have all this gold, that's why we're so wealthy. Was he doing that so it's like, oh, now we have all this land, that's why we're so wealthy. Was he doing it like that? No. By and large, um, you know, it, there, there were different excuses for taking, you know, putting land into trust, if you will. Um, there's a story in California right now that's hot uh, that California ranchers are upset because 1.8 million acres was set aside for a certain type of frog. It's a toad, I think, mm-hmm. yellow speckled something or another. And how, how, uh, many, how many acres? How did you say? One, 1. 1.8 million acres in California. Oh, wow. Okay. Prime, prime ranch land. Okay. And, uh, you know, for the sake of these poor little frogs and toads that, uh, you know, they think they say is going to become extinct. Um, they're overlaying all these regulations and restrictions now to run the ranchers off the land. It's much like what uh, the same groups did with the spotted owl to the timber industry a few decades ago. Um, you know, they you can't cut those trees down anymore because that's where the spotted owl lives and you'll destroy his habitat. Turned out to be a blatant falsehood, but. Nevertheless, they, they drove I'm, all the loggers out of business. I'm kind of laughing because I'm thinking about the frog. God bless this little frog. But it's a frog and, you know, tadpoles. I, you know, we did these experiments as a kid. You could make – yes, you could breed them up. There would be tadpoles everywhere, frogs everywhere. They could literally, if they were that concerned, just breed these little frogs. And they'd probably have an overgrowth of these frogs. And pretty soon they'll probably have – give people hunting license to kill them. Honestly, because I I don't know this frog specifically, I'm just talking. But it's a frog. It is, it, and it, it, it's for the most part, the population of any species has gone up and down over the decades and centuries. You know, big whoop. It's like the weather has changed over the centuries, right? It never stays the same, mm-hmm. and. It has really nothing to do with the frogs. That's the excuse. Getting the land taken out of production is what it's all about. So getting the ranchers to... and farmers off the land is what it's all about. So they don't want the ranchers to turn a profit or to to nope. do, make this stuff that we need because nope. why? Just because they want the land in their own pocket. And they don't want the greedy farmers and ranchers to have anything to do with it. Huh. They don't. Well, you, you have to understand technology a little bit, you need to understand that they made no provision for private property whatsoever. They would outlaw private property completely if they could. So is this more like 
communism? Um, it goes in that direction a little bit, but it's not communism. In fact, the communists and the technocrats hated each other back in the 30s. And uh, for, for pretty good reason, too, I, I think. But there's never been an economic system like technocracy. And they viewed themselves as being very special. They said, we're not a political system. We're an economic system. Communism said we're a political system. So they hated them right there. <laughs> and, okay. uh, so, you know, so it's not a political it's not a political system. No, it's not. It's an they, economic they never looked, system. They never looked at it that way. They just looked at it like a, a monolithic organizational structure run by scientists and engineers for all facets of society. And they had to become political in order to navigate the United States. That's right. It was just okay. They, okay. They, and the, our politicians became the useful idiots, if you will. Okay. To, okay. to get to get done what they wanted to do. All yeah. right. I'm, I'm getting a, I'm getting a grip on it because I can't picture it because I've never even you know I can't picture it out of side of outside of politics I guess I so uh, all it right. is hard it is hard it's hard for me too I I you know I was this is the country I was raised in and right. this is what we know this is all we've ever experienced it's very hard to realize that your political system is being used against you by people who hate it. Okay. Yeah. In the first place. So yeah. So that's back to that six million dollar question. Why would Americans be more loyal to, like, the Trilateral Commission and their new international economic order than to make other Americans more prosperous and more healthy and more? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Why would they do that? Yeah, I know. I think you have to boil it down to the to the abject greed and avarice that many people have in the human race. Yeah. And uh, when you're getting yours, you don't care about anybody else. That's that's a bad attitude, I in guess my opinion. So. In my opinion. I guess uh, so. But that's what it is. You know, they're getting theirs, and when when the money trickles down from our government, for instance, down into a local community, for public private partnerships or for land use or land abuse policies and stuff. The people that are getting the money at the bottom of that pyramid, you know, when it trickles down, mm-hmm. it's found money. They, you know, and there's always enough people that know it's wrong. It's probably really wrong to take that money, but Hey, somebody has got to take it. They yeah. And it might as well be me. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And so once, once they get, the cash in their pocket and they, they, it keeps coming, keeps coming, keeps coming. Where are your loyalties going to lie now? Mm-hmm. It's you one know? of those don't hate the player, hate the game kind of thing. At least in your yeah. mind, you're like, eh, this is the game. I just got to play it. That's right. And so you'll conclude, I got mine. I don't care about you. Mm-hmm. You know? Okay. That's not a good way to treat your fellow man, in my opinion. Yeah. At all. Mm-hmm. We were, our country was based on a, on a moral standard, had its roots deeply, I might add, in the Bible. But nevertheless, we had a moral standard where humans were valued as something important, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. something special, and that there was a dignity to humanness that we needed to respect. And we've lost that as a nation. We've lost that, of course, technocrats and People into scientism and so on 
they could care less about that sort of stuff. They hate they hate Christianity, they hate religion, they hate the Bible, they hate any moral constraints whatsoever. And, you know, they think that, hey, science can do it all. It's all we need, science. And as we've already discussed, it really isn't pure science, not empirical science at all. It's the pseudoscience that they're clamoring for. Yeah. Hmm. But I, it, it makes me think, too, because just recently I watched a thing and I'm just going to bring up Facebook again because everybody is on Facebook in America and these viral videos go around and a lot of it's clickbait, you know, just to get people yes. make money off of these things. But a lot of it, I think, too, is also to kind of get people to think differently and to get a, a mass you know, mass movement started in a different way. Like there's one I just watched about um, a transgender woman who got, she got a sex change to be a man and she's now with her new boyfriend. So she got a sex change to be a man, to be a gay man. And they got pregnant and she actually, or he, this transgender gender man, he had a baby. And so now they're like, we want to be the, we want, we want to show people that man can have babies and we want to be like involved with people feeling good about their bodies. And I'm thinking to myself, this is, I mean, God bless everybody, but just because we can do something sometimes doesn't mean we should be doing it. I, that's just how I feel. I don't know. But mm-hmm. um, that kind of freaked me out a little bit that they're trying to really normalize stuff like that. Well, <clears throat> I know um, it's it's kind of just a sad commentary on where society is right now, but it's not very rational. And now, would that know, be considered part of this um, transhumanism, or is that something else? Is that well, it may be an effect, maybe an effect of it. Um, you know, a kind of a breakdown in the in the fabric of society as we have known it, and. The society that existed 50 years ago is no longer here. It's right. not, it doesn't exist anymore. Right. And we are truly now living in a, in a postmodern society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean I like it or wanted it, but that's where we are. And so we have to deal with it. Part of the postmodern society is a lot of people are confused about who they are. Yeah. They're really confused about who they are. They just don't know. They have no moral basis for judging who they are. And enough people now are, you know, converting one one way or another. And I I lost track of all the ways you can express gender now. Um, gender creative was a new one for me the other day. What on earth is gender creative? But you know, you've got <clears throat> you've got all parts of the spectrum now where people say, "I want to be over there. I want to be that." And well, okay, you can say on one hand, it's 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 a free country. You can go be whatever you want to do. Just don't bother me. But when you try and shove it down my throat and start demanding of me to give you hearty approval for what you've done, even though I think it may be a little crazy, that's where I draw, I draw the line. I say, no, you can't, you can't do that. Yeah. I don't have out of any interest in giving endorsement to what you're doing. I will not do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they insist that you should. You know, that's like the cake, like the bakery that refused to make a cake. For a gay couple. Yeah, whatever happened to that guy in the bakery? Put him out of business. Oh, he's out of business? Oh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
That's it's, it's incredible. I, the stuff that's happening today is just, but th- that's kind of a societal thing. I wouldn't pin that. So on, it's not necessarily transhumanism. No, or, I wouldn't or, pin that on transhumanism necessarily okay. or anything else. But that's society more of a societal has, breakdown. That's right. Okay. Society has big problems in and of itself. Yeah, and, I saw a movie. Um, it was a documentary about when Russia, when the Soviet Union started to break down, and how. They had like a societal societal shift, and then they had like punk the punk rock movement started taking off, and people the same thing was starting to happen. Like the breakdown of the family was happening, and it was I was watching it thinking about what was happening to America, and of course what had happened in London when they started having their financial problems probably earlier than us. You know they had a that's where the punk rock movement came from, but um, they were talking about how it was happening in Russia. And it was very interesting to listen to because it was very similar to what's happening to us today, except now we're more technologically advanced and people can do things like have sex change and hack their gender and do stuff like that. So that was what I was thinking about. Speaking of of movies, there was a, a website, a transhuman website that listed the top 10 transhuman movies. Oh, good. Let's hear them. Isn't that interesting? Uh, this is like, who was it? Johnny Carson did the top 10. Yeah. <laughs> Number 10 is Avatar. Okay. Remember that? 2009. Gattaca from 1997. Okay. The Terminator from 1984. Well, that was just classic regardless, but yeah. go ahead. Yeah. The, the Matrix. This, oh, yeah. This that's, is what that's... they say, right? This okay. is what they say. Wall-E, 2008. Okay. Uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1930. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, another one from 2004 called Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Mind, okay. Uh, 1985, the movie Brazil. Oh, uh, that's interesting. That movie's kind of creepy. It is. Uh, 1927, the movie Metropolis. Mm. And then you had number one, the big one, 1968, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Uh, wow. And they listed some other movies, by the way, that didn't make the top 10. I, Robot from 2004, mm-hmm. uh, Star Trek Nemesis 2002, Blade Runner from 1982. Oh, Blade Runner um, is just awesome. Yeah, That's it was, just an awesome movie. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Equilibrium from 2002. There was Rise of the Planet of the Apes from 2011 mm-hmm. and Captain America from 2011 as well. Interesting. It is. Now, these were movies that they put on their website as being the top 10 transhuman movies. Okay. I didn't pay. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, because I really never even heard of transhumanism until I got to your website. And I mean, I knew who you were. I knew who your books were. I knew what you you were about. Um, But I didn't know about transhumanism so much. So I'm glad we're having this conversation. I didn't realize there's a group that was putting together the top 10 movies. Wow. I have to check it out. Well, I know. And we have a place here in, in Arizona, close to me, actually, in Scottsdale, Arizona, um, <clears throat> an organization that um, chronically freezes heads of people that die. Mm-hmm. Just Hoping, the head? Just the head? Just, just the heads now. They don't need okay. the bodies because the, the brain is in the head. Oh, they don't even and take they, the brain out. They just keep it all in there and freeze that, the that's whole right. thing? That's right. They keep it all okay. in your head, and they okay. freeze it uh, down to whatever you know, way low, and they're hoping uh, someday people are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to have have themselves, you know, frozen. They're hoping to be able to deanimate themselves uh, at some point 
and have their brains downloaded into uh, a cyborg or into a computer that will let them live again. See, that does not hold. That doesn't hold any. I don't have any interest in that. When I'm done, when I'm done, I'm done. I don't think by the time I get to the edge that I'm gone, I think I'll be looking forward to being gone. (laughs) At this point, I know this, uh, this company is called Alcor. Okay. And it's run by a gentleman by the name of Max Moore, M-O-R-E, who is one of the leading transhumanists in the world today. He leads the trans, uh, the largest transhuman movement in the world today. So it's directly, directly connected to the transhuman movement. But you know what? This, they've got, they've got clients coming out their ears. I could imagine, especially down in Arizona. It's like retiree central down there. Okay. So yeah. it's Alcor. I'm sure we could go online and look for it. If somebody is interested in this to get themselves, get their head frozen and mm-hmm. maybe you will show up, I don't know, next century and you'll, you'll be living the life. Hey, roll the dice. Um, yeah. Now, but listen here, I, you know, this, can you think of a better business than I say to you, you give me, you give me $200,000 and when you die, uh, I'm going to keep that money in trust and I'm going to put your head in a frozen, in a, you know, freezer can. And someday, uh, if and when uh, anything happens, uh, we'll wake you up or we'll whatever, unfreeze you and we'll put your, put your brain back somewhere else. But in the meantime, you give me $200,000. Now, what a perfect deal. Because you're dead now. And what if my, what if I run out of refrigerant? Right. You're going to sue me? Right. No. I'm sure there's got to be some, there's got to be some flaws. Like, oh my gosh, there's going to be a, a, a blackout or something, some problem with the electricity and everybody's head becomes unthawed. There's got to be some clause in the contract that says they're not, you know, you can't sue well, them. Well, of course, those are the unforeseen, uh, as they would say, those are the acts of God. Right. Yeah. Right. The acts of God. <laughs> Wait acts a minute. God. You Save people them. don't believe in God. What are you doing saying acts of God in your contract? Well, that's uh, the other thing, too. Maybe people that, do people that believe in God. Would they do that? No, I, I don't think so. I don't think would so. They? I, don't, I don't think Maybe. they would. I don't think Maybe. they would. I don't think they would either. But, yeah, that's probably how they get right out of it, an act of God. Yeah. Perfect. It's crazy. Oh, my gosh. But I, but I will say this about, the, about the, trans, the transhuman movement in general. They will fail. I don't want anybody to think that these people are actually going to pull it off. There is no way on God's green earth are they going to pull this off, ever. They never have in history. I don't care what kind of science they have on their side today. They are not going to be successful in escaping death period yeah well uh, this is this is kind of off on a tangent to this what about artificial intelligence computers just going off and creating their own languages and creating the and that's why i think they have terminator in that movie um is that part of transhumanism it's uh it, it is they would like it to be but by and large, artificial intelligence is being sold on futures, not on what they actually have. Now, it's true on one hand that robots are going to destroy our labor market. Oh, yeah. And there is a certain limited amount of intelligence, you know, programming that these robots have to have in order to operate. That's true. 
But artificial intelligence, uh, as it's being expressed today, is not going to succeed in becoming human. It just ain't going to happen. They would like us to think that it's going to happen, but it's not going to happen. It's a, it's a, it's a con, in, in other words. Hmm. Um, now, they're going to have, you know, ways to convince people that, oh, this is really, you know, we're really getting there now. Uh, you know, for instance, they have these sex bots now, you know, right. like, like yeah. plastic women, rubber, plastic rubber, whatever, women that look pretty doggone real. And they talk. You know, and they can have them say things like hold a hold a some kind of a conversation, you know, and as if, as if that's why you're going to the sex spot. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I know. I, I'm a, honest, Mom. I'm only I'm only reading the articles. I, <laughs> I, I, I oh only want I'm only yep. dating her for her mind. That's right. She's so smart. She's she's yeah, artificially right. intelligent. She. But you see, you can you can make a you can make a dummy appear even a wooden dummy appear to speak mm -hmm. ventriloquists have been doing it for a long time you can convince people that they're really speaking their own words and that they're really intelligent and they're senient and everything else but you know underneath there's somebody pulling the strings and the programming is just you know it's, it's i wouldn't say it's a fraud it's maybe creative <clears throat> but it's not what they say it is so they're not going to create a human and they're not going to create you know, a program is going to all of a sudden decide that all humanity should die. Another story, interestingly, came out <clears throat> uh, just uh, a couple of weeks ago. A group of scientists did some testing on artificial intelligence programs, and they found out that the programs created by men, by the way, women, that the programs had an equal tendency to do things that were illegal or unethical <laughs> as the creators that created them. Isn't uh -huh. that interesting? Yeah. I just like, okay. So basically they programmed in the human bias and, and now they're all surprised that the, you know, that the computer is doing thing crooked things <laughs> like just I'm as sketchy as them. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. So they just re, they may have recreated themselves, but what have they re, what, what have they created? You know, it's like, well, I don't want another one of you, mm -hmm. you know, I if you're already if you're already crooked with your science, I don't want another you being expressed in artificial intelligence. But it's not going to work the way they think they're going to. That's going to work. And what about what about the super soldiers that DARPA's been working on? Uh, God help the ones that volunteer for experiments. Or maybe they don't volunteer. Maybe they're or just. Maybe, or maybe just they don't. God help showing them up on the yeah showing up in the war zone getting their vaccines. Next thing you know. There's a nanobot inside of them. Well, Who knows? I don't know if you saw the movie Ghost in the Shell that just oh, came yeah. out. Oh, yes, I did. That's actually an old movie. Is it from Japan, right? They they redid it. Yeah. Uh, this is the modern version. And I think it was Scarlett jo uh, uh, Johansson that was the star in it. Um, the, the theme is that this girl and her friend was, was kidnapped by this organization who wanted to take her brain out of her body and put it into a cyborg. Mm -hmm. And she became like a quote unquote super soldier, if you will. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> she was given false memories uh, to, uh, you know, to make her think that she had some, you know, she drowned or something and her parents had a car accident, this sort of thing. And she believed that all of her all of her existence in this cyborg body 
But then she later found out that, no, she had been kidnapped forcibly from, uh, she was a street kid, and she'd been kidnapped off the street by these people that were running this laboratory. And they took her brain out. <laughs> she never knew. She never knew. They took her brain out. And, yeah, isn't that sweet? That's um, Ghost in the Shell. That's a that's yeah. a classic uh, anime yeah. movie. That's that's a cool movie. Yeah. I, I haven't se- I haven't seen the redo, but it's that actually made me cry when I saw it the first time. Yeah. That, I liked that. Um, well, this is DARPA. I, you know, this is the threat of DARPA. You know, you wonder uh, are they going to get volunteers? Or are they just going to go out and grab somebody <laughs> and say you're coming with me? We're going to have some fun. Yeah, could be. Well, just as we're just kind of wrapping up here, I want to remind people that I'm talking to Patrick Wood. He is the author of the book um, Technocracy Rising, the Trojan Horse of Global Transformation. And he's got a website, um, technocracy.news. And it's not just him. It's the group of people. And I really want to thank him for being with us tonight to talk this all through with me. I took tons of notes. And I'm really looking forward to everybody coming back next week. Thank you, Mr. Wood. Thank you. We will be back together again. Okay, excellent. Bye, everyone.